0: Profitable path you've been searching for, with unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing—it's all there.
1: You know, let's say right now you're making a hundred dollars an hour, and you—you you know, like ah, I'm leaving money on the table. I should charge more. If you just double it to two hundred dollars per hour, your existing clients are going to head for the hills. They're going to be like, well, on Friday. It was 100 an hour, and on Monday, it's 200 Like, what changed? Nothing. And that's existing customers. And then new customers, as sort of already alluded to, they're going to go around and talk to a bunch of people, get everybody's hourly rate, and pick the second cheapest one. So good luck with that.
0: Welcome to Smart Strategy for CPAs, where I help you work less and earn more. My name is Geraldine Carter. My guest today is Jonathan Stark. Jonathan is a former software developer who is on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He's the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, the host of two podcasts, Ditching Hourly and The Business of Authority, and writes a daily newsletter on pricing for independent professionals. Jonathan, welcome.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: We're talking today about better ways for CPAs to price their services so that they can get out of the accounting rut. We'll get into different pricing strategies, the difference between value, price, and cost, selling outcomes instead of deliverables, and so on. But first, just to get everyone on the same page here, let's start with, at a high level, your top four or five reasons that billing by the hour is tragic.
1: Yes, okay. Yeah, I see it as a cancer on professional services. It prevents you from leveraging your expertise, because if somebody buys an hour from you, it takes an hour for you to deliver it. And that's by far your main cost is your time. So, you know, that artificially limits your income and puts a ceiling on the number of uh, dollars you can bring in, in a year. Uh, it's really hard to scale up. If you do scale up at all, the strategies are very limited. You know, add headcount and mark up their time. So you're basically getting a bunch of people who are mini me, not as good as you. Um, that you're renting out by the hour and taking a margin, that's really hard to scale up, especially if that's not what you want to do. And you're only doing it because you think that's the only path to growth. Uh, So that just creates bad bosses and and angry people. And, you know, if you want to build a giant firm, then fine, that's great. And you want to be a manager and a leader, then fine, that's great. Go ahead and do it. And if you want to build people up by the hour, I'm not going to chase you down. But That's, to me, that's not the only path. So you can, so it limits your income. It's uh, bad for the client relationship, because you can get started before you even know what they really want to achieve. So you're just billing, billing, billing. Uh, This is really bad in the software space where it's like people don't spend the time upfront to really understand what the client's trying to achieve. So when they just start working you don't find out until way late in the process that wow this isn't really going in a direction that's going to benefit us because no one talked about what's going to benefit them so it allows you to get started working before you really know where you're going it's like driving a cab without the person telling you where they want to go you're just driving around and you might be an amazing driver and you might be like hugging the curves and and you know just like getting through every red light but if you don't know where the person's trying to go you're just wasting their money if you got to the, the correct destination, it would be dumb luck. So that's another one. Another, another issue is that it misaligns the financial incentives between the, the buyer and seller. I mean, to put it bluntly, the longer it takes you to achieve something, the more money you make. and that's not what the client wants. The client wants it to cost less money and probably wants it done more quickly. I mean, that's just a bad, and I know everybody listening, they do, they're honorable and they don't pad their timesheets and they do things as quickly as they can but financial incentives matter. And if you don't have a financial incentive to get faster at what you do, then you're not gonna get faster at what you do. You're not even gonna think of things that would uh, allow you to deliver a high quality of service in half the time. Why would you even think of that? Why would you invest in tools that would allow you to go more quickly? Why would you even buy a faster computer? it doesn't make any sense what what is the point of that investment you should have a you know again in the software space computer speed has a huge impact on how long it takes you to do things similar to video editing and other things maybe not so much with cpas but you know why would you buy a faster machine why would you buy tools that would allow you you to go more quickly if that investment is going to directly result in a loss of money I, i could go on and on you know why would you even why would you do any professional development what's the point you're just going to get better it punishes expertise The better you get, the less you make. It's bonkers.
0: It is bonkers. And I would add a couple of my own. It's like going to the grocery store and buying 14 pounds of heirloom tomatoes for your pasta sauce, not knowing that the heirloom tomatoes are $8.99 a pound. And you get home and you don't get the grocery bill. You don't get the bill from the grocery store three weeks after you've made your pasta sauce. And you're like... If I would have known that the heirloom tomatoes were $8.99 a pound, I would have just gotten the aromas. They would have been fine. I was just making pasta sauce. And then the other problem that I see about billing by the hour is that CPAs are just leaving truckloads of income on the table because there's so much more value to what they do than to what they're necessarily charging for. And yet it makes no sense at all to price at $2,000 or $750 an hour. People just can't compute that number.
1: Right, there's a certain limitation on an hourly rate. So that's a, that's a tacit assumption is that uh, if you say to somebody that your hourly rate is $2,000 an hour, they're just gonna hang up the phone. You know, they're not even gonna get to the point where you say, but it's only gonna take me five minutes. They'd just be like, no, it just sounds too dangerous. And the, I mean, from a marketing standpoint, if you're advertising your hourly rate, or it's easy to find your hourly rate, it allows them to compare you apples to apples. They believe that they're comparing you apples to apples against other people who have the same job title as you. So it it incentivizes or it encourages a race to zero dynamic because they're like, well, why should we hire you? There's someone who's cheaper. It's, it's, It's irrational, but they think someone who charges less per hour is automatically gonna be cheaper. So it makes it really hard to, you know, say double your hourly rate. You know, let's say right now you're making $100 an hour and you, you know, like, ah, I'm leaving money on the table, I should charge more. If you just double it to $200 per hour, your existing clients are gonna head for the hills. They're gonna be like, well, on Friday, it was 100 an hour and on Monday, it's 200. Like what changed? Nothing. There's no added value. There's no conversation about value. You, You basically just doubled their price for no obvious reason. And that's existing customers and then new customers I sort of already alluded to, they're going to look at you and say, well, what's your hourly? They're going to go around and talk to a bunch of people, get everybody's hourly rate and pick the second cheapest one. So good luck with that.
0: Right. So before you go any further, let's back up for just a minute. You mentioned a couple of times that you were in the software industry. So tell me how you became an expert on pricing and why should we listen to you?
1: Yeah. So I've been, uh, let's see, in 2003, uh, 2003, I started at a dev shop. So it's like a boutique software development firm. Within a couple of years, I'd worked my way up to vice president. We had maybe 13 employees, 10 of which were developers. We built them out at $150 an hour. Uh, didn't matter who you got, it was $150 per hour. And it occurred to me at one point that we were losing money on our best developer because he, we all knew who the best developer was. Uh, we were lucky to have him, he was a great developer and we paid him around $100,000 a year, and he would just burn through projects so fast, he'd do them right the first time, there was not a lot of rework, uh, he was blazing fast. So we were probably breaking even on him, maybe losing money. And then we had this junior developer who was basically, not quite an intern, a little bit bigger, better than an intern, but really junior, who had a great bedside manner, kept his clients perfectly happy, and would take four or five times longer to do anything. And so we're making way more money, off of this sort of uh, lower tier resource, if you want to put it like that, and I just could not accept that. And I, but it took me weeks to figure out what the problem was. It, that's the insidious nature of hourly billing is you just don't question it. It's like water to fish; like you don't question. You didn't decide should I bill by the hour or some other way. You immediately, when you go solo, think how much should I charge per hour. And it took me it took me like oh, weeks to figure out what the issue was. And then as soon as I. Identified that it was because we were uh, trading time for money instead of giving someone a price. I the light bulb went on, and I was like, "If that happened, if we gave a price, then instantly our best developer would also become our most profitable developer." And I could not unsee that. So I went solo, started my own uh, solo consultancy, and just knocked it out of the park right away. I mean, even though I was stumbling my way into figuring it out, it still was a dramatic increase in income, and like double but that's not even the important part. The important part is the quality of life, the quality of my relationships with my customers, 180 degree difference. It went from, you know, I was managing 10 developers. So basically my whole day at the time was talking to clients about hours estimates, fighting about timesheets and like how much this should have cost or this week. It was, well, it only took one hour last week, spending hours on the phone mm-hmm talking about hours,
0: defending your invoices,
1: right? I'm sure a lot of listeners have thought, you know, have had like a a sort of um, high maintenance client where they've considered actually putting the conversations about hours on their hourly timesheet. Like how insane is that? You know? So anyway, I I could, I could give you some more anecdotes if you want, but it became obvious to me that that was, that that was the, the root problem. And then once I saw it, it was like everywhere.
0: So let's transition to helping our listeners shift in the direction of value-based billing. And no doubt, it's a difficult transition to make. For many, it's like a quantum leap. Can you give listeners a place to start, a place to begin thinking about how to shift out of billing by the hour into value-based billing?
1: Yeah. And and this is why I left the firm and didn't try and convert the firm, because it's hard to convert a firm. And I didn't know how to do it. Uh, if I had tried, I probably would have failed, and we had payroll to consider. Uh, I, I had no experience with it. I just had the idea. I had a revelation, but no, no process, no steps. Fifteen years later, or whatever, however many years later it is now, more than that, uh, I've got a bunch of ways that you can do it. And so the the you know you've talked about value and value pricing. That's just one way. The big thing is to ditch hourly, to stop trading time for money. And there are a variety of ways you can do that, but you can't be selling your hours because there's no way to leverage it. There's just no feasible way to leverage it without adding giant headcount. So if, if that's off the table and you want to stay boutique or solo, you really, you have no options. So you have to stop trading time for money. How do you do that? Your, your internal systems probably are just infected with hourly billing assumptions at every turn. Like it was true with us, We had uh, our our estimation system was based on the concept of hours. Our entire sales interview process was based on the concept of figuring out hours. We had uh, systems that we built that would feed hours into the invoicing, so that uh, and ingest hours from developers, and would chase it. You know, it was everywhere. The assumption was baked in everywhere. So if you're in a situation like that, and if you have you know five ten employees, you probably are, then it's gonna be a a process, it is gonna be hard. And my advice is to do it in very small steps and get the experience, start to slowly get the experience of working on a project or working on an engagement where you're, you're losing money every hour you work and getting that sense, like feeling the shift from like, hey, I just made 150 bucks to, hey, I just lost 150 bucks. And start to notice the gears that turn in your head when you're losing money by being inefficient. It changes your whole view. It changes the way you see the world. It certainly the way you see your business. All of a sudden, you're going to say, "Wow, you know, for this particular kind of project." So maybe one thing that I would recommend for CPAs is to look for a a particular, usually a phase of an engagement. With a client, like something, maybe it's a lot. With software developers, it's usually one of the upfront phases before a project or before an implementation or before a support and maintenance contract. Upfront, there's some kind of strategic engagement where you're doing planning or architecture or um, some kind of strategic advice. Where at the, it's very fixed scope. It's not gonna. It's not the kind of thing that's gonna spiral out of control or, uh, you know, turn into just hours and hours and hours of labor on your part. It's usually, um, it'll be something like a few hours, maybe five to 10 hours spread out across the course of a couple of weeks, maybe a month and create like a little, a safe little fixed scope, relatively fixed scope service that you can present to the world as a product with a published price on your website, but then is delivered as a service like you're used to doing. So it's kind of like creating a repeatable tiny project that you can sell as a productized service is what we would call it. So create a productized service out of probably some kind of initial engagement. You're already gonna be comfortable with the delivery piece because you do it all the time. It's something that you do all the time and doesn't change that much from customer to customer scope wise, and then just price that piece. And then that becomes an initial engagement for new clients, let's say. And once you start doing that, once you start selling those, your brain is just gonna be like, wow, We could optimize this in so many ways. We could create so much efficiency to take this from say 10 hours over the course of a month down to two hours over the course of two weeks and charge as much or more because we're delivering the results more quickly. So that's a great first step is to find something that you've done multiple times and doesn't really change scope that much and pick a price for it that you'd be happy to receive and start selling it as a productized service. So you can start to experience that feeling of of losing money for every hour that you work.
0: So I'm thinking about compliance for CPAs because that tends to be something that they are already doing at a flat rate or a fixed fee. It's already to a degree a productized service. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think about other examples that they're probably already doing or could be doing readily at the sort of beginning stages of working with clients. And what Mm -hmm. comes to mind for me is something like creating a dashboard for your clients and just having that be a standalone service where you could dig into their financials and pull out the key metrics and put those on a dashboard or run some kind of diagnostic or do some kind of profitability analysis that spits out a report and that is the product and it's done. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine doing something like that 10 or 20 or 40 times and you get increasingly better at it. You figure out how to get faster at it. You also come to understand how to make it more valuable to the client, both by what you include or how you communicate it and so on and so forth. And increasing the value of it means you can increase the price and you also get faster so your margins on it go up. Right. So I'm just trying to... Interpret what you're thinking and translate it into concrete ideas that CPAs might be able to go, oh, they might be able to recognize and go, oh, okay, that's what he's talking about. I could totally do something like that.
1: Yeah, I can give you an example from my life. Like, I don't know the first thing about being a CPA, but I have one. So I, I'm probably the ideal person to, I, well, maybe not the ideal. Maybe I work with larger companies. I'm a solopreneur so. Uh, but, but I'm clueless about, I don't know what, I don't know what any of this stuff is. I can't read a P&L. I, I just, she worries about it. You know what I mean? So when I think o- over the course of the relationship, there are basically three things that happen. So at the very beginning of the relationship, uh, my CPA helped me set up the business and set up my ledger and all of my QuickBooks stuff. Like I, I'm the w- worst with that. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. It was very scary. I felt that if I got it wrong, I was gonna regret it for a long time, very high value. And, and so there's this arbitrage between my fear level, uh, my recognition of my own incompetence, and the high stakes, what felt like a high stakes situation. And then on the, so it's very high, I'm holding my hand way up in the air, like my value, what it's worth to me was really high. Now the cost side of the equation, almost any CPA that was halfway decent This is nothing for them. It's like a no-brainer. It'd be embarrassing. They'd give it to a junior person. Anybody could do it. So the cost is really low to them. Maybe not anybody can do it, but it's certainly very, very easy compared to how hard it is to me. So there's this huge, now I'm holding my, my other hand down really low. So the cost to the seller is very low. The value to the buyer is very high. The space in between those two numbers, if you apply numbers to them, is where any, you could set the price anywhere in there. So if the value to me, if I would pay, let's say to me, I'd pay $3,000 to have someone who I trust to set up all of my stuff, pick how I should incorporate, do the research, decide if I should be an S corp or whatever else, an LLC, set up my books. Maybe I'm gonna do my own books, but I just need someone to set them up. Tell me what software to buy. Uh, you do all set it all up. So all the, I mean, I don't even I know so little about it that I don't I can barely even talk about it. But I'm sure your listeners are like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's like, super easy, no brainer. I could do it in two hours, maybe maybe they have a template, they, they can just send me that I open and boom, there, there's my whole setup done. I mean, maybe it would cost it would be worth $3,000 to me to, to trust that that's all set up, right. So for CPA, they might think I could do that in an hour, I do that for 200 bucks, 300 bucks. So there's a 10 X differential between what it would cost them to do the least amount of money they would accept to do the work and what it's worth to me. So they could charge me you know, if they want a no brainer sale, they could charge me 500 bucks for it. And I'd throw money at them all day long. If they said 2,500 and it's going to take them an hour or two, I don't care if it's going to take them an hour or two. I'm like, yeah, take my money, do it. 2,500, that's $500 cheaper than I would have spent. And that's one example. I've got some other examples that we could probably get to that I'll I'll refer to, but there's, there are different altitudes of engagement. When you are working with a client, there's, uh, and this one is sort of the strategic level. It's like a planning a setup. Uh, It's short amount of time. It's a small amount of labor. It mostly is based on your experience. And it's, it can be very high value to the right people. It's so easy for you and very high value to the right people.
0: Let's come back to the altitude piece later. I wanna to touch on something that you said in there about the spread between cost and value. When I hear CPAs talking about cost and value and price, it sounds to me like they are conflating all three things. Yeah, And they are not one and the same. In fact, there's a long spread in between those things, or at least there can be. Right. And I wanna talk about what it sounds like in the real world. So I pulled up some random CPAs website just to give us a sense of what it actually sounds like. So let me just read this off this person's website. Our monthly CFO services are valued at between $7,500 and $2,500 on average. This price varies based on the number and types of reports you want prepared, as well as the level of involvement of our CFOs. We don't charge hourly because we believe in value adding and work-based pricing. Yeah. So (laughs) there's a lot in there that's problematic. Why don't you take a crack at that?
1: Well, first off, they it sounds disingenuous. Value is not a feature of the service. It's not a, it's not a, um, a property of a thing. It's a perception in the mind of a potential buyer. So to say it's valued at... Is a stretch you could say that on average the kinds of clients we work with who are very specific Would pay us as much as ten thousand dollars a month But that's that's very that's a stretch. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what they're doing there is is trying to anchor high and then you know come in with a price that's lower than that it's kind of like it's kind of like setting a retail if I set a retail price on my book i'm just anchoring high it's like i can set the price at zero if i want it's like a silly thing to say it 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 boils down to it's simple it's simple value is the most a particular buyer in a particular situation would be willing to pay for a thing it's the most they'd be willing to pay for a thing and it changes from person to person it changes from situation to situation if you think about like buying a beer at a ball game or buying a beer at the store same person, but not willing to pay $8 at the store for one beer, but maybe at a ball game, I would. So the value changes all the time. So to put the value in print without even talking to someone is extremely it's a stretch, that's a stretch. The cost on the other hand, is the least amount of money you would accept to do the thing, or to to part with the thing. So you've got so that's what I was talking about before with with when my CPA helped me set up my business. I had a really high value, the most I would pay was, let's just say it was $3,000. That's the the value, that's what it's worth to me. And only the buyer can say what the value is. Only the buyer, you're not not allowed to tell the buyer what it should be worth to them, that's comical. You can tell them what the price is, and if it's lower than the value, it will be acceptable to them. So the price is that number that's in between the cost, ideally it's in between the cost and the value, that's how you get an acceptable price. So the cost is the the least amount you'd accept. The value is the most the particular buyer would pay. And the price, if you want it to be acceptable and you want everybody to be happy, the price needs to be in between those two numbers. And by the way, that's why people, clients hate hourly billing, because it can, they can make a buying decision, agree to pay. And then the number creeps, the price creeps up and up and up and goes past the value, like you said, with the tomatoes.
0: Yeah, yeah. You don't know how much you're paying in advance, which is a terrible way to do business.
1: It's insane.
0: My husband got stung by a couple of bees and he passed out and went to the ER. So we were pretty sure that he was allergic, but you know, somebody recommended that he go to see the allergist. So he went to see the allergist to get tested to see if he was in fact allergic, which duh, obviously. And one visit to the allergist to test if he was allergic and we got a bill for four grand. Yeah, I I was like, wait, what? Yeah, It just strikes me as like, if you want to piss people off, don't tell them how much you're going to charge them and just wait until after you've delivered the service and then send them the bill. I mean, it's like, there's no more guaranteed way to piss people off than to have the price far exceed the value.
1: Yeah, go ahead and spring it on them, see what they think. Here's the thing, because people will object to that uh, in this way they'll say, yeah, but, my, but I bill by the hour now and I hardly ever get your cranky clients. The, the reason why is because it's a, it's a coincidence that the final amount of money that changed hands was less than it was worth to the buyer. It's luck. And maybe you're really good at estimating. So when you give them an estimate, if you even do, it sounds like the allergist didn't, but if you give them an estimate up front, and you're good at estimating and you're good at keeping scope creep from happening, then it can work. But you're but in that case, you're just leaving tons of money on the table, like if you're that good at estimating, you're probably really experienced and you're probably prevented from raising your hourly rate to what it ideally would be, and you get you get the be- the worst of both worlds
0: or option two is that the price was higher than the value, and the client paid you, but they were pissed off about the fact that they paid you, but they paid you because they knew it was the right thing to do
1: hundred percent, yeah. And I think everybody's been there. I mean, if you've been in business for a couple of years, you've, you've probably had at least one client that's been like, oof, I really did not think it was going to be this much. And it's, is that good for the relationship? Uh Uh-uh, no.
0: And that, that is a key piece of it. I'm glad you brought that up. You talk about trust in the relationship and this creates fissure, a fissure in the relationship where your client feels some degree of feeling betrayed. I mean, betrayed is a strong word, but it's not because you necessarily did anything nefarious. It's just because they didn't know or or realize that it was going to cost that much. And so now you have a crack, a small one or a large one in the relationship. And, and really the problem here is that in the profession, In the profession, they talk all the time about being a so-called trusted advisor. I mean, you hear it everywhere. You can't swing an umbrella without hearing you have to be a trusted advisor. And hourly billing does nothing to engender trust. And it's just one more reason that the profession needs to move off of hourly billing.
1: Let me say one thing about that. Trust is a two-way street. And billing by the hour demonstrates that you do not trust the client you might feel like you trust the client. Well, if you really trust the client, give them a fixed price. Oh no, I'll I'll lose money. I'll go out of business. They'll ask me to do things I didn't expect. Oh, you don't trust them. Like that, that drives me nuts. So that it's like, oh, I want to be like, sorry, you touched a hot button. I want to be a trusted advisor because I know where that's where all the money is, but I don't want to trust my clients. Because, they're, because the seller is afraid that the buyer is gonna abuse their time. Yeah,
0: they're gonna, yes, they're gonna call me every five minutes. Oh, so you don't trust them. <laughs> they're gonna burn through all my time. I'm never gonna be able to get them off the phone. There's no way I would give somebody access to my phone line and just give them permission to call me whenever they want. That would never work. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get it. That's not a billing problem. That's a client problem. Totally. Let's go to how to establish value because I think for a lot of people, this is tricky. It's quite squishy, it's undefined, and it's very new. So talk to us about learning how to establish value.
1: Sure. Quick background, though. I only do value pricing for projects. So I don't do value pricing for support and maintenance kind of services. And I don't do value pricing for strategic engagements that are essentially productized service. It's specifically for a project. What do I mean by a project? A project is a collaborative enterprise between you and the client that's designed to achieve a particular aim, has an outcome. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not ongoing monthly. That's not a project. That's a subscription. The way that you define the value is by, you know, you meet with a client in a sales interview. This has to be done in real time. It can't be done in any other way, uh, in my opinion, like over email, not when you're starting out. You need to talk to them and they're going to come to you and they can say, Hey, we're looking for a CPA for whatever reasons. And they're going to have a bullet points of stuff they want you to do. And you write all that down and you say, great. Okay. So, um, what are you trying to achieve from this project? Cause I could do this a hundred ways from Sunday and I, I need to make a lot of decisions about what level of quality, where to place effort, how much training needs to be involved, how much onboarding, how much of your time I'm going to need. So what is the larger context? Why do you need to do this? Why do you believe that you need to do this? What will happen if you don't do this? Why do you need to do this now? Why is it so urgent? Let's just put it off. This is going to take up your time. It's going to cost you a lot of money. So why not just not do it? Can't you put it off for six months, study the problem, see if it goes away, see if it's really not as urgent as you think it is right now. And then finally, why would you hire someone expensive like me to do this? You can get a, you can get a a bookkeeper anywhere, or you can get a CPA anywhere. Just go to Fiverr, go to, go to TopTel or not TopTal, That's a software development thing, but go to, go to, um, I don't know, you tell me there's probably some marketplace for CPAs. I guarantee you there is.
0: Yeah. So TopTal or CPA moms, there are plenty of marketplaces for CPAs.
1: Like that's the way that that's the way the whole service industry is going by the way, but that's a subject for another day probably. So when you understand why they want to do this, and more importantly, you agree that they're right, because they're not the expert you are, maybe they don't even need this, this thing that they think they want. But if you answer, ask these why questions, I have this why conversation, and you get answers to those three categories of questions that convince you that it is a good idea for you to work with this client. So they have convinced you that it's a good idea to work together, not you pitching to them, like, here's all the whiz bang stuff I'm going to do. It's all about them convincing you that there's a good fit. And if they've done that through this questioning, you're going to know how they know that something's wrong. They're measuring something. They want this project to take place because something is not the way they want it. And if you want to satisfy them, you need to find out what that needle is that they're watching on their dashboard or what, whatever the motivation is. You need to find out in advance how to satisfy them. How far do you want to move that needle? How will you know if we hit a home run? What would be a disaster if you spent all this money? What would be a disaster at the end? And figure out in advance how to satisfy them. It's the same as the taxi metaphor. Ask where they want to go first and then start driving. So if you know this information and with some basic information about the client, I mean, crying out loud, your CPA is going to know everything about how much money they have. So you can say, look, this is... You can come up with a value. You can you can make a back of the envelope calculation roughly. This is an art, not a science, which is why it's hard. You can come up with a back of an envelope calculation of what this project value is worth. What it what is worth to the client. What the value is, and then from that number, you pull out three prices. You can use different. I use two different price curves depending on your uh, how bad do you want to land the project, but come up with three numbers that are a fraction, small fraction of what you think the value might be and then you scope last you decide last what you're going to do so this is how it's this is how it will always be profitable for you and the client unless you're horribly wrong with the value in which case you're not going to close the deal anyway but as long as you're roughly in the ballpark on the value and you come up with let's say a 10 percent a 22 percent and a 50 percent option so hundred thousand dollar project value-wise to the client which you know through conversation with them you're not making it up then you say 10,000, 22,000 and 50,000. And here's what I can do for 10,000. And then you think, and only then do you think, how can I help them in a way that I will be perfectly happy, like excited to do for $10,000? What is that scope? Think of that, lat. don't even think about that in the meeting. And then you basically, you've got a budget of $10,000 and you give yourself, again, you pick, a, you pick a scope that is going to be really comfortable because you know there's going to be scope creep, you know there's going to be surprises. There always are in a project, always. A collaborative project with a client who's not an expert at what you do, there will be surprises. So pick something that you would barely do for $5,000. So give yourself a 100% profit margin. And when things inevitably change, you'll be like, "Ah, it's fine. I uh, got plenty of margin on this. It'll be great. So instead of one day for $10,000, it's going to take two days for $10,000. So, and then over time you'll get better and better and better at that so that your numbers will be more and more accurate. So what this allows you to do back to the the beginning when I said hourly billing puts an artificial limit on your income, this allows you, the sky's the limit. If you can find clients that have more and more value, that will get more and more value out of the, the services that you provide, the numbers that you can, the prices that you can put in your project proposals just magically go up even if the scope that you would put into each one of those options is identical or close to it, there's no such thing as two identical projects, but if it's very close, it'd be very close scopes. So in other words, without much more work, you can charge a client $100,000 for basically the same thing if the value to them is a million. So your growth comes from finding clients who value the stuff that you do more. So what is that? And we could talk about how to, to calculate max price formula and value and all of that stuff if you want.
0: So yes, let's talk about it. And if listeners want more, they can go back and listen to episode 105, which is mathematical proof that different is better. Mm-hmm. And just briefly in that episode, what I was really talking about was how to help CPAs think about differentiating and that differentiating is better and how to separate yourself from a sea of white button down shirts. Cool. And the other two parts of that that I didn't talk about as much in that episode are desire and buying power.
1: And yes, and availability of options. Right. So to me, I, I feel like availability of options is the differentiation piece. And desire has more to do with they, they can. I mean, this is just a mental model I created. It's not like mathematical, really. But uh, it's desire can come from the uniqueness, they can kind of feed back on each other. It's probably not going to happen with a service business unless you are a bigger rock star than I'm aware of, like I'm not aware of a CPA rock star. So, I mean, like maybe there is, Jim Cramer's not a CPA, but he's famous and he's a money guy, I don't know. But you'd you'd need to be, the uniqueness can create desire, but in general, the desire is like, how bad do you want something times what's your buying power? So that's, that's how much you would pay. And then you divide it by availability of options if there are a lot of options that look the same to the buyer, in other words, they're not meaningfully different, then they're just going to go with the second cheapest one. Because why would they because everybody wants a bargain. So they're not going to they're not going to want to feel like a fool spending too much for what they think is the exact same thing. But if they if availability of options is zero, then it sends the price to infinity.
0: Yeah, I too am working on how to get availability of options down below one. What are all the different (laughs) ways that you can reduce yourself to be less than one so that your max price goes up asymptotically? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about finding the value first for a project. We're talking about project, not subscription, because that's a whole different episode. So where CPAs get killed is on scope or it's almost oftentimes they don't even establish scope. They just get started working. Like you said at the beginning or in another episode, you said, you know, it's like there's a partner. You say to the partner, you go set up the invoice and I'll find out what they want. So let's go to this example that I have, and this can be the last thing. This is from a CPA who the story appeared in my feed. I scrubbed the details. Um, just to kind of keep it anonymous, not that anybody knows what's in my feed, um, but here's the story. She says, I'm having a hard time pricing a tax compliance project and goes on to tell the story that basically um, this prospect hired some schlep of a CPA who screwed up and missed some significant depreciation. He prepared the taxes incorrectly that way for two years. She then went on to filed her own taxes, and she followed his methodology on uh, TurboTax or whatever. Um, so she copied his screw-up, replicated it for two more years. In the meantime, there was a significant inheritance, and that didn't get accounted for correctly. And so now this prospect is has five years of incorrect tax returns that basically need to be amended. Yeah. In addition to having to do all the amended taxes, she now needs to pay fees and penalties and pay back taxes for what was done incorrectly. Plus, to add insult to injury, she needs to now pay a better CPA to do it all again correctly. Right? So there's that. And then, so she's wondering, like, how do I price this? But to top it all off, she says, This is my college roommate's sister. She says, I think I either need to lowball it or she'll freak out at the price. Yeah, well. But how do I do that without screwing myself?
1: Okay, so the simple way first is to find out from her what it's worth for her to have this fixed. Because she's not going to pay more than that. She's not. It's just, it's not going to happen. So what is the most, what's the value to her to have this improved? What is the outcome that she's looking for? What is the outcome? Okay, define the outcome. What's the success metric? It sounds like that would be fairly easy to define in this particular case. It seems like a particular mess that needs to be cleaned up. Once you know that, it's the same process. You come up with three prices. There are a fraction of that. And then you come up with a scope. Now, it is 100% possible. And this happens in software all the time when some, you know, tire kicker comes along and says, Hey, I want you to make a Facebook clone for me. I've got 300 bucks. The value can be lower than any possible cost to you. So if you if she there's it's not like value pricing isn't a isn't like a recipe or like a magic bullet to increase your fees. It just means that you will always be profitable. So if she comes to you and says that I can't 5,000 is the most I can spend. That's it. That is it. Okay, then that's what it's worth. So you need to come up with a $500 option, a $1,200 option, and a $2,500 option that you can somehow help her and you'll be happy to do it. Now, the, the emotional aspect here affects your cost. So the, the cost, you can, so you can imagine a client who's just awful to work with. They're just mean and cranky, all caps emails all the time that actually increases your cost of doing business with them. Mostly our cost is time, but there's also an emotional cost to working with bad clients. This is the reverse. This is the reverse where he's got a sympathetic client who he's essentially related to, has a relationship with. And so this actually lowers the CPA's cost because there's going to be a emotional boost from doing this. So in other words, put it another way, the amount of money they would take to do the work, the cost to them is actually lower than normal because they really want to help this person. So they're getting paid in an emotional way on top of the financial way. So, I mean, there's no way around it. Like it doesn't change the fact that you could value price this and say, okay, how much you like Alice, how much is this worth to you to get it fixed? If the number is 5,000, then you come up with three prices that are a fraction of 5,000 and you do something to contribute to her success. And there might be no scope in the world that will fit inside of those prices. It it happens all the time, but you know it's because this is, I'm, I'm assuming that I'm making the assumption that she's not like a billionaire, and this isn't this isn't really a high value problem for her. All things considered, like like when you imagine a client situation. So yeah, you know, it's a hard situation to be in. I, I recognize that, but. You could try and do something for 500 bucks that would at least point her in the right direction or uh, give her a book to read or some materials or, um, you know, maybe a couple of phone calls to, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is and it, and it might be impossible. There might be nothing. There might be literally nothing that can be done.
0: Right. Okay. That's a key point. It helps you see clearly if there's nothing to be done beneath the price that you're willing to be paid it helps you objectively say i cannot take this on without feeling annoyed or resentful mm-hmm. about having said yes yeah that's a really helpful place to leave it that value is not just about increasing prices it's a it's a way for you to provide a range of possible solutions for your clients So that they can choose what makes sense to them, given the context they're in and which solution they want.
1: Yeah, in a way that is always profitable for both parties. Love that. Mm -hmm.
0: Brilliant. (laughs) Jonathan Stark, thank you so much for coming on the Smart Strategy for CPAs podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It was fun.
0: Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on the podcast. There were a lot of gems in this episode. What I see is most immediately implementable when it comes to moving out of hourly billing is to take one thing that you already do all the time anyways, and turn that into a flat fee service and give yourself the experience of getting faster and better at it. So you know what it feels like to divorce your profit margins from your time. And once you get a taste for that feeling, you will be thirsty for more. If you want to hear more about Jonathan's max price formula, go back and check out episode 105, mathematical proof that different is better. And if you want another recent episode on pricing, check out episode 104. How much would a CPA pay for a kid's bike? If you want help with your pricing, join me on October 22nd at noon Eastern for a free training on how to give up dollars per hour. If you're ready to stand out from a crowd of same-same-looking CPAs so that you can be one of few available options, join me on November 19th, also at noon Eastern, to learn 10 phrases to scrub from your website immediately and what to replace them with so the right clients can find you easily. You can get all the details and register for both of these at my website, shethinksbigcoaching.com. All right, that's it for me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down a 40 Hour CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, Times, pricing, it's all there.